Chapter 2 contains 10 different subsections. There is a large amount of data in this chapter, and to cover it all in this podcast would take more time than should be spent on this podcast, and it would be really, really boring. So I'm going to cover the high points. Chapter 2 of Taylor's book is full of information and consists of 10 sections. The overriding subject is land, with the following subsections, fear, proclamation, independence, regulators, lines, sessions, vandals, Quebec, and royal populism. This is an overview of chapter two, high level. During the 18th century, the population grew faster in British America than in the mother country. Abundant land, early marriages, and healthy conditions, the number of colonists doubled every 25 years. In 1751, Benjamin Franklin calculated that within a century, the greatest number of Englishmen will be on this side of the water. Franklin praised the growth and expected power to shift westward with the flow of population, increasing in colonial clout and diminishing that of the mother country. Ben was seeing the future. The West enticed settlers to make new farms at the expense of native peoples. A British newspaper anticipated two centuries in the future when visitors from the Empire of America come to tour the ruins of a depopulated London. In Ireland, the Earl of Hillsborough was becoming worried that he wasn't going to have any workers on his farm as they were leaving in droves to head to America. Hillsborough argued that they would be doing those who planned on leaving a service and for the public good to restrain people leaving the place of their birth without leave from the magistrates of the place. He was worried about losing his labor force. In those days you lived on a farm, not as a slave, but close to it, and being very poor you could hardly afford to do anything let alone have your own land. What could the British government do? Unable to control Britons, they tried instead to restrain colonists by vetoing subsidies offered by some colonies to attract immigrants from Britain and by restricting Western settlement. The restrictive policy sought to avoid expensive wars with Indians. Burdened by a great national debt, the empire could not afford to spend more money policing the West. section is entitled Fear. The British conquest of New France alarmed native peoples who lost the leverage of playing off one empire against another. Indians also resented the British claim of the territories that the French had held by native sufferance. The Creek chief warned British officials that natives were surprised how people can give away land that does not belong to them. An Ojibwa chief shared with the British, although you have conquered the French, you have not conquered us. 
We are not your slaves. Colonists continued to invade and settle on Indian grounds in their country, upsetting the Indians. Alienated and inspired by religious prophets who promised that the master of life would destroy the greedy intruders, Indians revitalized their traditional ways and ceremonies, believing a prophet. Prophet Neil Lane insisted that the natives would create on earth a heaven where there was no white people but all Indians. During the spring and summer of 1763, far-flung native peoples surprised and captured most of the British forts around the Great Lakes and in the Ohio Valley, killing or capturing the soldiers. However, the natives failed to capture the three largest and strongest western forts, Detroit, Niagara, and Pitt, the former Duquesne, and the future Pittsburgh. They referred to this as the Pontiac Rebellion. As a side note, a North American Indian religious cult of the second half of the 19th century, based on the performance of a ritual dance called the Ghost Dance, that it was believed would drive away white people and restore their traditional lands and way of life. Advocated by the Sioux chief Sitting Bull, the cult was central to the uprising that was crushed at the Battle of Wounded Knee. Many natives attacked British post and colonial settlements. Calling them rebels also misses their point, for Indians were free people who would never become British subject. One chief assured a British officer, this land is ours and not yours. In Pennsylvania in 1763, vigilantes known as the Paxton Boys massacred Indians who had sought colonial protection. Paxton Boys tomahawked men, women, and children as they prayed. In 1760, 500 armed Paxton Boys marched on Philadelphia to intimidate the leaders of Pennsylvania into adopting harsher measures against Indians. The colony allocated more money for frontier defense and ordered boundaries for Indian scalps. $134 for a man, $130 for a woman, and $50 for a child. This next section is titled Proclamation. In October of 1763, a royal proclamation ordered settlers to stay east of the Appalachians and barred colonial governors from granting western lands to speculators. As a side note, the governor still sold land to speculators. They had, a way to, they had a way to make money. The reason for this is that between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River, you had a lot of very fertile land that was occupied primarily by Indians and was being settled by colonists who disregarded the proclamation. With access to the Mississippi River, goods that were difficult to transport over mountains were much easier to be shipped down the Mississippi to Louisiana. Hence you'd have colonists trading with the Spanish as opposed to being forced to trade with the British. With this proclamation, British did very little right. Banning Western settlement, which settlers ignored, 
The Royal Proclamation instead invited settlers into three new southern coastal colonies, East Florida, West Florida, and the Ceded Islands in the West Indies. Located in the West Indies, the Ceded Islands consisted of Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, and Tobago, which the British had taken from France during the war. The Ceded Islands were promising for sugarcane and coffee plantations. I won't go into all the issues with Florida, but swamps, mosquitoes, malaria, and alligators were not that attractive and many settlers departed Florida. They had come to find out that South Beach wasn't, and the promise of all white sugar sand beaches and bikinis was still a couple hundred years away. This next section is called Independence. I think this quote from Benjamin Franklin is really a good introduction to this section. No man who can have a piece of land of his own, sufficient by his labor to subsist his family in plenty, is poor enough to be a manufacturer and work for a master. When the terms of an indenture ended, families moved west to make new farms. They readily quit their masters got a small tract of land and started to work. The first few years were tough and they were poor. However, the satisfaction of having your own land brought a great deal of satisfaction and being landholders smooths every difficulty. For new settlers, the land was expensive in New York and along the East Coast. So they moved to Pennsylvania, Virginia, the Carolinas and Georgia. An Anglican missionary, Charles Woodmason, described Carolina settlers as banditti, prolificates, reprobates, and the vilest scum of mankind. They dwelled like hogs in cramped and drafty cabins with little or no bedding, wore few clothes while swapping their wives as cattle, and living in a state of nature more irregularly and then chastely than the Indians. This section contains a substantial amount of information about how land grants were restricted in size, but were ignored by the governors who catered to land speculators. Greed ran rampant in the early days of our country. This next section is called Regulators. In the North Carolina backcountry, settlers faced similar demands for payments from speculators who claimed millions of acres. Settlers found an inspirational spokesman in Herman Husband. Although born into a wealthy slaveholding family in Maryland, he had been transformed by his religious conversion during the Great Awakening. Husband lamented the unequal chances the poor and the weak had with the rich and powerful. To justify armed resistance, he invoked the higher authority of God, who favored justice for the humble over further enrichment of the powerful. Backcountry regulators drove away sheriffs who tried to satisfy court orders by dispossessing farmers. When sheriffs arrested husband, 700 armed men assembled to liberate him. In May of 1768, they disrupted the Hillsborough court, driving the judge 
Richard Henderson, and beating up three lawyers. They broke into village stores, smashing windows and taking goods. Then they destroyed the buildings and furniture of Colonel Edmund Fanning, the county's leading lawyer and sheriff. Two months later, arsonists torched Henderson's property. Governor Tryon rallied the militia in East North Carolina in March to suppress the regulators. It was a nice try. He caught some, some were hanged, but at least he showed an effort. From another historian, John Spencer Bassett, he was a professor of history at Trinity College, which later became Duke University. He wrote about North Carolina history, including the regulation movement. The regulators did not wish to change the former principle of the government, but wanted to make the colony's political process more equal. They wanted better economic conditions for everyone instead of a system that benefited the colonial officials. Bassett, the professor and historian, also downplays the role played by Herman Husband, the Quaker pamphleteer, who was often identified as one of the movement's leaders. Husband was a moderate, simply attempting to bring the vicious various sides together, but because of his prominence as a writer and a correspondent of Ben Franklin, government officials continually identified him as the leader of the disgruntled action. Governor Tryon was moved from North Carolina to New York. The British felt that because he took care of the regulators in North Carolina, he could handle New York. However, he had a bigger problem. During the early 1760s, the greedy governor of New Hampshire, Benning Wentworth, had charged fees by granting lands west of the Connecticut River to aspiring land speculators. During the late 1760s, the equally reckless governor of New York, Sir Henry Moore, made even more money by granting the same lands in larger quantities to his friends. Two people selling the same land twice. Does anybody want to buy a bridge? To win the race to settle the region, the New Hampshire grantees sold lands at rock bottom prices, which alerted laborers and tenants eager to form own farm and defend their bargains. The settlers organized town governments in a militia known as the Green Mountain Boys. And who led the Green Mountain Boys? None other than our old buddy, Ethan Allen. He then retired from leading the Green Mountain Boys and started making furniture, I think. Allen denounced the great state and magnificence of New York's land thieves who sought to exploit hardworking settlers by demanding premium prices for frontier land. After burning a New Yorker's farm, Allen told him, God damn your governor, laws, king, council, and assembly. Try as he might, Tyron could never catch and hang the Green Mountain Boys as he had done to North Carolina regulators. This next section is called Lines. In the book, Lines is lengthy and describes the efforts by the British governors and other miscreants to wreck lines by which no man could pass. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, go directly to jail. 
I will talk about a few highlights, but this chapter needs to be read slow and with a clear head. Dozens of native nations held the land west of the Appalachians, north of the Gulf of Mexico, south of the Canadian subarctic, and east of the Great Plains. Approximately 150,000 natives who occupied this area greatly outnumbered the settlers and soldiers who occupied small outposts in the vast west. Native nations subdivided into small scattered villages, each with several competing chiefs who led rival clans. Britons considered Indians blessed with perfect freedom or cursed with virtual anarchy. During the late 1760s and early 1770s, the settler influx threatened the 1800 Shawnees, 3500 Delaware, and 600 Mingos of the Upper Ohio Valley. Selectively borrowing from the intruding culture, natives clung to their distinctive identities and homelands, for they despised assimilation into colonial society, lest they became a labor force. They did not want to become part of the Borg. The British lacked the manpower to enforce a royal proclamation against the defiance of settlers who poured over the Appalachian Mountains into Indian country. The British struggled to protect their own troops against settlers who resented the warming relationship between Redcoats and Indians. Unable to restrain settlers, British officers hoped that the Indians would take bloody revenge on intruders and murderers. John Stewart assured Creeks, we will set up marks, and if any white people settle beyond them, we shall never inquire how they came to be killed. I am not going to cover the section or sessions, Vandals, Quebec, Royal Populism, and that's it. The section on Vandals is pretty long and pretty good. Kind of covers who did what to whom, how often, and with whom. Talks a lot about the battles between the Indians and the settlers. Virginians speculation. So there's a lot in there. One thing is Daniel Boone is in there too. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you.